This time on Philosophers in Space. 40K, but make it gay. Philosophers in space, 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 space. Season two, the beardening. <laughs> Season two, cry harder. <laughs> Season two, queer coded dark universe edition. <laughs> Season two, Lovecraftian, Cronenbergian, or Dickian Boogaloo. Oh, I, I had season two, Buggy in his boonaloo. I love it. <laughs> season two, Enter the Naked Time. Season two, fully solar punked, ethically sourced pansexual space socialism. <laughs> it's just the culture. We're just the culture now, is what I'm saying. Welcome back to Philosophers in Space, friends. I am your captain, the Honorius Calliope Ann Homosexuous, <laughs> joined by my chief ethics officer, Erroneous Luckpilius, <laughs> captain of the winter dawn. Fuck yes, my liege. I'm going to make things extremely fucking horny and weird up in here for you, sire. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's already starting. I love that. Obviously, this time around, we are starting Gideon, uh, which folks have been excited about. I have been excited about. And gosh, was I not disappointed. Uh, So just... Full disclosure, I have not finished the entirety of it yet as of this recording. I'm about, uh, I want to say two-thirds through. Uh, we're going to be uh, finishing. We're going to be doing about the the first third of the book um, <laughs> because there is just yeah. so much here, Aaron. They're welcome to the densest, gayest young adult sci-fi novel you have ever fucking read. <laughs> Holy shit. I am so excited about this because I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I have read Gideon, Harrow, and Nona. Uh, I've read Gideon like multiple. And by read, I mean listen. Everyone should listen to the audiobook. Like, oh my please God, do it's not so buy a physical good. copy. <laughs> it's okay. so good. Yeah, let's all agree that like whatever source you're getting your books from, fucking listen to the audiobook because you will not grasp the full beauty of this if you do not hear that particular artist's rendition of every one of Gideon's fucking lines, which is the funniest fucking thing I have ever, ever heard. I love this book. Yeah, like I wouldn't go as far as to say that like I'm I'm sure no one could possibly do it better, but I gotta say... I doubt that anyone could do it better. Like if they could, I don't fucking care to know about it. Like <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> well, I don't know that we need to do a lot of uh, housekeeping here. Uh, maybe it's time to go ahead. And- oh, Oh, is there, I do have one. I do yeah. have one little housekeeping uh, in the real, realish world. Um, uh, don't recommend I it. I got an, Keep, no, it, keep us there no, for not, as little time as possible, Aaron. Not even once. Back to the lesbian necromancer as soon as possible. Um, Patreon has a free version thing now. So, like, you can be a member on Patreon and, like, be a part of that community, comment on posts, get involved in stuff without actually paying. 
Um, this is different from the like, if you want to be part of our fungal network and can't afford it and want to reach out and we will help you out with a link to like a Patreon feed. Um, but if you just want to like be on Patreon and see like what's going on and maybe upgrade from there, that is apparently a thing they have now. Um, so I just wanted to mention that for folks who might be interested in joining our weird, um, interstellar skeletal network. (laughs) Comrade Patreon. Love that. (laughs) get some of them patreon titties of the ninth (laughs) (laughs) oh i need to hear all about the titties of the ninth so uh let's go ahead and plot me it was a bunch of complex characters thrown into heavily serialized battles which always ended in mind-blowing twists and made me question the basic tenets of my reality Mm, i will plot you so hard (laughs) i will gideon is like you know fucking dax and them come up so hard in my mind alongside gideon i'm like oh yeah we're gonna do bone stuff, fucking Callie. We're gonna do bones all day. I will bone you so hard. It's gonna be fucking ninth, first, fifth, sixth, ninth. I don't care. It is how I'm gonna house you. <laughs> oh, I feel so bad for everyone who could listen to any parts of this and expect actual analysis. We've got queer theory. I want to mention we're gonna have some sophisticated queer theory analysis later. It's fake news. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it's first worth noting. It's I think a functional truth of the universe that in every relationship there is a gideon and a harrow i okay yeah say more but i yeah right unless you're like you know both of the people in your relationship are lich switches you're probably going to be in a situation where like there's a gideon and there's a harrow and like that's great i love that and like i think the question are you the gideon or the harrow in the relationship should be our new genders if we're being honest here oh shit okay i uh (laughs) and you know i don't have any immediate objections no it's way better than masculine and feminine in every way so we meet gideon (laughs) As she is plotting her escape from the ninth house, uh, and Plot me. one of the yeah one of the first things that we learn about Gideon is that she has thought to to pack her dirty magazines as part of getting ready to get the fuck out. Um, yeah, she's she's done all kinds of weird behind the scenes stuff to get this shuttle to get the hell off the planet, so uh, so she can go join the cohort which uh, is, I guess, just like the the Imperial military, right? Is that, did I, yeah. Am I getting that right? I want to throw in a note here and just say the impressive nature with which world building happens in every goddamn fucking sentence of these fucking books. Um, like, we're going to describe, like, the physical events of the opening sequence of this, and that will in no way convey the massive amounts of information and content that you get in just literally this first exchange. Like, the literally the first interaction between any of our characters. We will learn things like there is some sort of interstellar military there are houses, there are slaves and servants and royals and a god. And maybe? necromancy <laughs> and skeleton servants. Sure. And mostly our main character is a foul mouthed lesbian who mostly just wants to get off of this terrible rock that she's trapped on so that she can go fuck some space babes. Yeah, which relatable. Uh, like, like she yeah, and I are on the right. same I'm page. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> Uh, queers in space let's do it yeah so as as she's working her way out to to this uh shuttle 
and she's like waiting on the shuttle to arrive and like there's a you know a countdown for how much time it's going to take until the shuttle gets here uh it's almost uh like a uh, a christmas story-esque thing where she's confronted by three people <laughs> who who challenge her in some way or another uh to and and just tell her an like interesting connection how, mm-hmm. yeah I, I, it and it didn't come to me uh, so i said I, i've gone through about two-thirds of the book and before we recorded sure, just sure. today i went back and listened to just this part of it again and so i'm i'm on my second listen for this one and that it very occurred to me the like like oh she's like mm. encountering three ghosts that are supposed to like teach a lesson or or even just like are just like meant to introduce three different varieties of important information about the character and, uh, and like her relationship. Three ghosts is very in vibe for a fucking necro world. I like right. reminds that Callie. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I try. Uh, grew it yeah. myself. So three, three ghosts. Yeah. Do you want to describe yeah. those? And like, I'm going to be here to like try to simultaneously fill in the gaps while not spoiling anything because like, a lot of stuff makes no fucking sense in this book until you've read the second and third book. And that's awesome. I love that for them. Yeah. Well, and I think we'll probably talk more throughout about one of the reasons this feels like such a satire is because I think the author is very deliberately going overboard and throwing information at you to like make that point. And so there's just like all kinds of names and character details and all of that sort of stuff that like, I feel like I would need to read this book a dozen times through before a whole lot of it actually stuck. So the three characters are this, this crux guy and then a and then, um, and then Nona Jesmus. And then Nona Jesmus. Right. Yeah. Right. Tim's and Mir, who I actually just listened to an interview before this conversation, and I love even more having listened to very Kiwi. And like this is a very Kiwi book in a lot of ways. Um she is a troll. <laughs> like there's no other way to describe this individual. She was a literary troll. Um and like a lot of her answers to like sophisticated questions of like, what would you meaning with it? Like, like is like I'm a shit talking internet troll. Like, I'm sorry. I just thought it was very funny to like fucking troll this particular concept in this way so like i love the ways in which she yeah uses a bunch and she also is like i'm very catholic or like came from a catholic background like isn't but like that's her sort of source material literary touchstones and whatnot it's a mix of catholic and memes and that tracks a lot yeah this book is full of catholicism and memes and i love that for us shit Um, shit poster with a book deal Right, exactly. So, like, totally, you know, could be actively taking into account the idea of, like, the three ghosts in this kind of way, but also, like, just being, like, like so many of the names in this book are about, like, references to Greek and Latin, but also references to just, like, internet jokes. Right, right. Gideon is trying to escape slavery in the Ninth House. Yeah. And do you well, know that she's indentured? Like, She's indentured. She's not a slave. They make that distinction. Sure. Have you had any sense of what the ninth house actually is as far into the book as you are? I'm just curious. I mean, I know, like, things about it. Um, But you don't know what it is or where, like, what what it might be in our universe. Oh, um, I mean, definitely some, like, Catholic church vibes because... There's like a lot of forbidden knowledge. It's a like a hallowed sure. institution um, that, you know, people are there's I mean, there's all kinds of like very overtly 
like I guess Western religion at the Western religion esque tropes and sayings For sure. and rituals and that sort of thing. Um, I love that you went in symbolic. I'm literally asking, do you physically have any sense of where it's located? If it was located in the same universe as ours? Oh no, not remotely. Okay, and like you, sh- I would say you probably shouldn't. Like if you're not cheating, like I went through this entire first book without a clear sense of where the houses are. But there's a direct answer to this question, which we'll we will get to before the end of part three. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, fancy, uh, fancy. Yeah. This is the hooks, like fascinating harrow hooks all over the place. Uh, and then we meet Aglomine. You're so cute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, right, so Crux shows up and tells Gideon that they're terrible for trying to abandon the house. Right. Um, very arch, right? Very, yep. like, honor, culture, all the things. Important. Yep. And then Aglamine is her sword master. So, yes. like, the person who has taught her. Because she's uh, she's an extraordinarily talented uh, long swords person. Right. You're, you're Gurney's Halleck, if you will. <laughs> And then, um, uh, right. and, and I think this is, she's the one who like kind of goes through some of the previous escape attempts, all, uh, like 33 of them for this particular, like trying to leave to go the cohort. We learn later that it's like 78 times, uh, throughout the entirety of her life. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to throw a pin in the reality that like gender is always important at every moment in every part of the story. So we have a male captain of the guard and a female swords master who is old and also in the rough honor tradition, but also like appears really like genuinely seasoned, like really is our like understands reality more deeply than the bullshit that they are dealing with, but also understands how they have to deal with the bullshit in order to function in reality. I also love, uh, I I love this sentence out of context. Mm -hmm. The more you struggle against the ninth, the deeper it takes you, the louder you curse it, the louder they'll have you scream. Which again, the sexual undertones of literally every sentence of every one of these books is important. Yeah. It's not an accident. <laughs> Nothing in these books is I feel an accident. Whatever. Like if you actually Tamron Mira in this interview was like, Oh, I had like a page of notes. I'm like, sure, sure you did. Whatever brilliant Kiwi lady who like, you know, mapped out a bunch of brilliant gender tropes in your stories. Yeah. Right. And so early in the conversation, I think we get the number that's like 33 times that she had tried to leave to go join the cohort. And then later on we get to learning about the previous escape attempts. Cause they started when she was a very young child. And this is like number 78 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, we learned yeah. that, uh, that her mom died under some su- suspicious circumstances. Um, yeah. Three is a reoccurring theme in this stories in general, I would say like numerology is a part of these worlds. Yeah. Um, the numbers of the houses are a big thing. And yeah. So the story of her mother and her origin, there are like a bunch of things in this book where they will be interesting and also not stick in your brain, in my opinion, until you've read the other two books and reread this book mm. where you're like, yeah, Gideon has some weird origin, but I missed nine-tenths of what the fuck that was about. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. So you're like, yeah, you know, her mother in some way weirdly showed up in the ninth house, gave birth to Gideon, died. And and what you find out in that part is the necromancers of the ninth house 
did everything they could to try to bring her soul back to her body to find out why the fuck she randomly showed up at the house. And all they could get out of her was the name Gideon. Yeah. And that's why Gideon is named that. And that will mean fuck all to you until book two. <laughs> Just absolutely fuck all. <laughs> and then we are confronted by Nona Jessimus, Lady Harrow Hark, some extremely long title that I'm, I'm not remembering all of, but she is the, the lady of the ninth house who is apparently 17 years old, um, which I believe is younger than Gideon. Gideon is 18, right? Am I getting that They're, right? Yeah. Gideon is ever so slightly older than Harrow. Yeah. So roughly the same age, but they, they, it does like mark yeah. in the book that she's like slightly younger. Um, right. And for reasons that will become more clear in book two. Again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it, apparently a talented necromancer and then they, they do this interesting nego- negotiation. She's like th- threatens her way into being let go. Like she's got some secret she's going to spill or something. I have questions for you at this point, Callie. <laughs> Cause like I had an experience of like going through this book. It is like primer where you will not remember so much of it. And you'll come back to it multiple times and you'll be like, holy shit, did I read this? What happened? Let me ask you, first of all, visually, what is your understanding of Harrow from this first sequence? What what does Harrow look like? If you were to describe Harrow to a sketch artist, you know, at the police station. I, I think the impression that I've gotten is that she's just like tall and skinny and also has like kind of like tall, like angular facial features. The vision that popped into my mind because of the way the book that de- the way the book described her would be maybe somebody who at least has the appearance of being kind of malnourished. Yep. That's not, a, that's not a, you. That's a feature, yeah. not a bug. Um, and actually everything you're right about there, except the tall part. Yeah. And I think that's actually not a bug. That's a feature too. In this first scene, she's described as being the lady of the house, right. and she's you don't get a description of her like stature. And I think it's deliberately meant to give you the impression that she's like one of these tall, lithe royals. Yeah. Where you later find out that she's a tiny fucking 17 year old. She's so small, right? Like, and the point is compared to Gideon, she's fucking tiny, you know, and, and like has no muscles. Like, I want you to imagine the skids of Letterkenny. Like, this is a goth <laughs> child. Right. right. You know, she's Full arch goth, yeah. mask and all, clothing and all, lack of muscles and all. <laughs> like, that is who she is. Um, but in this first sequence, you know, Gideon is up against her, and the impression you're meant to get is that she is big and scary in this moment, I think, because of her power. Because you're right that she, like, she's wicked powerful. Um, yeah. She uses the phrase, so let me then ask oh, you, griddle. Gonna, right, oh, griddle. I'm going to start picking people in my life to call griddle. It's my favorite thing. I, yes, have discussed with folks how griddle is one of the best diminutives you could possibly get. Where, like, it's such a great way to say, oh, you're so cute and fucking stupid. <laughs> Having asked that question, let me now ask you, how do you understand the sequence of, like, just describe the sequence of what you understand of the motives and events of this opening scene? Because it is so goddamn dense that I, I would guess that, like, no human being understands it on the first encounter. I mean, for me, it's, like, kind of a brilliantly constructed way to get to know the character very quickly. 
um, because it's like very, very quickly you get three characters that she has a lot of history with and they, mm-hmm. they go back and forth about it. And of course, like we're meant to understand Gideon is like a rebellious type. And so that's like a lot of what these folks mm-hmm. talk, talk about. Also, we get some of her internal monologue cause uh, we get like a little bit of that, like insider's view of like what she's thinking and feeling at any given time. And right. Uh, she, you know, all of these acerbic uh, comments, you know, I guess I'll disgrace you. Right. And book one is from Gideon's point of view. And that's important because yeah. Tamron will we'll fuck around with your sense of who is the point of view a, a lot more in book two. Yeah. So like that's not an accident. Yeah. So you get to hear uh, Gideon's internal monologue, which is hilarious. One of the funniest things about this book. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and aside from that, like, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I have a bigger sense of of like what like like I feel like that's the mm-hmm. best answer I have to your question, and I realize that it's not a good one. <laughs> like, what, do you have any sense of like what is the back and forth between them? Because like you have a sense that there is like a a weird chess game going on between them here. I'm curious how much sense you have of like what are the moves in that game? Oh. Yeah, I don't know that I had thought about it that much. I mean, I mean, aside from just like, I mean, I remember being a rebellious kid and realizing that like, if I was having a disagreement with an adult who had some kind of power over me, the only way that I could retain some feeling of agency or power in that situation is to say some really out of pocket shit to that person. Uh, because I kind of knew that like whatever they wanted to, whatever they wanted to happen was going to end up happening, but I was going to make sure that I made them feel bad in the process or something. Um, or, or just like you know, make it as hard as interesting. Like make it as hard for them as I possibly can without crossing the line to get in real, real trouble. You know? Yeah, I love that. That's a great description. Except, yeah, like Gideon pulls out all the cards on this one, but you're yeah. very much in the, like, you know, from a theatrical perspective, you can understand a scene in terms of motives or in terms of actions, and the motives are very straightforward. Gideon wants to get the fuck out, and Harrow's like, "You're not leaving." Right. And it's, you know, I've talked with people that like 80 to 90 percent of theatrical scenes are one person wants to leave the scene and the other person doesn't. And that is the motives and everything yeah. else follows from that. Um, and that's why you get the like exit slash turn around for one more moment. Yeah. Exit. Classic. Right. Um, that is the motives. But the like, like. I want to explain the whole thing that happens here. And luckily we're doing three parts on this because there's so much to fucking say about Gideon. Um, Over the course of this, if you're, you know, if you've read everything multiple times, what you find out is Gideon is essentially blackmailing Harrow. Okay. Harrow is the reverend daughter of the ninth house, which is to say, theoretically, there's a king and queen running around in this house. But what we're going to find out is they're already fucking dead. Um, And Hera has been puppeting them for five years. And Gideon knows that because Gideon walked in on them hanging themselves. And we're going to know why in a second. Um, But for now, what Gideon is essentially doing is she has arranged a bunch of, like, fake passports and shit to like get themselves into the military of whatever necromancy world we're living in. And the way they're allowing, they're forcing Harrow to let them leave is by saying, if you don't, 
I have to get on this ship, and if you try to call me back, I will tell everyone, A, that your parents are dead, and B, that the ninth house is dying. That the ninth house has not produced more individuals in a big way for a long period of time. Which you were maybe were subtly aware of, but not thoroughly aware of in this first reading through of the book. Speaking of being dense, I had caught on to the fact that like the secret was that the house was weakening and was weaker than it than was generally known somehow i completely missed the fact that her that we're talking about people being dead like because my understanding i i thought that i remember it saying they were like weakened somehow and that their like power was waning or something like that jesus that's literally her parents are dead and she's been puppeting them as corpses for five years to keep up appearances right. while running the house. Um, Gideon knows this, having walked in on them, hanging themselves Christ. for reasons that will soon become a very apparent. I feel so um, bad about my ability uh, to retain parents. details because that feels so to, very important. No, this is this is not you. I'm I'm leading you through this in this way because I want you to understand this is a matrix thing. Everybody falls the first time, I think. Yeah. Everybody like in reading Gideon the first time, you will you will follow the vibes and miss 60 to 70% of the content. And I say that as someone who tried to not do that and still did it. That's like, true. There's no, that's such a good way no of saying it. This. That's such yeah. a good way of no. saying it because I, I do, I feel exactly that way. Like I've gotten the vibes, but I am so scant on the details of what exactly the fuck is happening in the story. <laughs> and that is neither your fault nor a flaw of the book. Right, right. It is, it is actually, again, a feature, not a buck. Um, but I wanted to walk us through this because I thought it would be valuable and worthwhile for the folks who are like, have read Gideon three times and are like, I want to hear the real story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is the blackmail. That is where, where Hera was like, you little shit. This is actually very clever, but fuck you. Right. Um, and so what does Hera then offer? <laughs> right? A way out. Yeah, and and this is like right. so. Ve- this is a very brilliant piece of psychological chess that happens here. So she offers her basically just offers her a commission in the cohort with like a a fancy starting position that like the average person just couldn't go get. Uh, but right. in order to get it, she's got to go to this muster meeting that the house is having because there's like a thing happening, and she wants there's her a to be doing there. the transpiring. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I'm just going to note great one-liners throughout just so we know uh, right I hate it when you act like a butt-touched nun right such a uh, there's a line about you know your heart is a home for like 5,000 knives yeah. every Gideon line could be dissected for its beauty at any given moment and that's just Gideon's lines everyone else's lines are also quite good yeah um, yeah I have several keynotes but yes and for then, sure and, it's and then, all like yeah and then Gideon just kind of tells her like no still fuck off and then Harrow gets even more angry and is like, okay, how about this? If you fight me and you win, you leave with the commission. If I win, you come to the muster meeting and you still get to leave with the commission. But you and I are going to fucking fight. And here we are in the goddamn honor culture that yeah. is going to describe our feudal system. And, like, I have zero qualms, but the fact that we spent 30 minutes on this first scene, this first sequence of Gideon is, in my mind... Like, 
memetically equivalent to the first sequence of the movie The Godfather. For folks who've watched The Godfather at this point, like there's an opening sequence at a wedding where you are introduced to almost every main character and set up like almost every key plot point of the story in the first 20 minutes. And like you could spend hours dissecting that first scene. And this is like that, like the level of detail that flies over people's heads, but is beautifully crafted in this first moment is exceptional. So like, yeah, I don't mind that we're spending all of this time just to get up to the point where like, Hera is like, fucking fight me. Yeah. And that is the way this world works. Um, but it's a very thoroughly strategic fucking fight me, which again is the way this world works. So Gideon is like, I feel bad fight. And like, this is specifically like, Harrow says, I'm going to take off all my, you know, like, I'm going to take my badge off. Like, I'm going to take off my, <laughs> yeah, my leash. Yeah, take off the bracelets and, like, the fucking, like, teeth or whatever that were around her neck. Right, and hopefully it's clear to you that, like, as a necromancer, having those things is part of their magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they drop all that stuff, right? And Gideon's like, I'm just going to kick the shit out of you now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how does that go? <laughs> right, the hilarious moment turn, which is what? Like, what do you... What is the moment where Harrow sort of pops the trap here for Gideon? Uh, well, some some fucking skeletons just start to come up out of the ground. <laughs> Again, when you're like the best lines of this book, I'm like, I knew this was how I was going to die, getting gang banged by skeletons. <laughs> that was one of the one-liners that I had written down. I knew this is how I'd go, gang banged by skeletons. Right. And what we're learning here is that Harrow is an exceptional necromancer. Yeah. For reasons that will later become horrifyingly apparent, right? Harrow's skill is scale, right? Let's say, right? From a tiny amount of of material, they can produce fully functional skeletons that own people very quickly. Um, and we're not talking about a tiny amount of materials. Instead, we're talking about an entire night's worth of burying bones in the ground, knowing Gideon was planning this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's you know we 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 know that. Gideon's plan had been known for like a week and so Hera went and buried all of these skeletons anticipating this whole thing because she's just that good um and and that's uh, where the word arch again becomes important to me like I don't know if everyone uses arch the way I do in terms of like arch villain where arch means not just top but like over the top in a specific kind of way I had actually never heard that word used the way you did until I started doing the show. But it, it was also like, I mean, context clues helped me understand exactly what you meant very, very quickly. I feel like I'm pulling it from somewhere. Someone else uses that phrase in that way as like arch, as meaning like this concept taken to an extreme. This entire series, insofar as is a satire of 40K, which is itself arch, is like <laughs> right. double plus arch, you know? And so there is an important archness to Harrow's behavior. Harrow could have simply shut this down, but instead they personally spent the entire night, as we learn when they take their gloves off and their hands are covered in dirt and shit, yeah. and they complain that Gideon is like, you know, like they spend their whole night doing this for the fucking with them part. Like they're willing to go that extra mile just to troll the person properly. Yep. You know, just to make them feel like they have a chance before they pull that chance away. Dedicated <laughs> shit posting. It's very good. Right. Right. The commitment to the bit yep. is what I mean by archness a lot of the time. Like you are willing to commit to the 
popped collar, you know, cloak that you are wearing. And not really much to say about this in podcast form, but I just do have to note that the fight scene is written very beautifully. Like you get a sense of the action and it's it like painted a very good picture in my head. And so it like it's not just witty dialogue. Like I was I was legitimately like entertained and kind of sucked into the way the the actual like parts moving through space was like it's got that too, which is very, very cool to me. I love it. Yeah, because it's from Gideon's perspective, and Gideon realizes in the moment, holy fuck, I'm in a bone field, like you're in a minefield, and like everything around you is bones, and they sprint to try to escape the bone field, but they realize it's too big, and they try to fight it, and again, character building, we learn that Gideon is a good swordsman, Yeah, and we're going to learn more about that later, but like... Gideon tries to fight off the skeletal army that, like, amasses out of the fucking, you know, like, um, I'm a big fan of the classic, like, sword and sandals style movies, Jason and the Argonauts and whatnot. There's a classic Jason and the Argonauts sequence where the, um, the teeth of the Hydra turn into these claymation skeletons and they have to fight the claymation skeletons. This feels like a goddamn beautiful homage to that moment, okay. you know, of like just skeletons constantly coming yeah. up out of the ground and having to fight them and stuff. And like, it's a great, beautiful sequence, right? And then at the end of it, like Harrow's like, I'm still just going to do what I want, which is force you to go to this meeting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the fight does not go well for poor Gideon. She gets knocked the fuck out. <laughs> Some really good descriptions of her like moving in and out of consciousness and, and hearing things. Um, but then we're, you know, we're, we're down in this big ass meeting hall, lots and lots Scene of skeletons. Two. Yeah. Scene two of a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and there are like plenty of details we glossed over. Uh, there's like still much more. So many. Um, so many. But yeah. And the glomines. Yeah. So there's like, you know, it's lots of skeletons hanging out at this meeting. There's some wild ceremonial talk. Everybody's like talking all, I don't know, ceremonially. <laughs> And we we should know what we find out is the room is huge and full of mostly skeletons. Yeah. There are not a lot of living creatures in the space. Yeah. Oh, and um, speaking of your your godfather homage, we get a little bit of that where like there is a lot of time spent describing the the non-skeletons who are in the room, the people that are in the room. So like the current cavalier of the ninth, along with his mom, and now we meet Ortis, yes. Yeah. Dear sweet Ortis. Poor Ortis. <laughs> And we learned that the Emperor is looking for lictors. Yeah. So this is the big reveal, right? Amongst other weird things that are going to happen in this scene, the big announcement that has caused this. And, and like, I want to just note on a meta level, we're doing the hero's narrative fully straight on, right? Oh, absolutely. We have a hero with a mysterious origin in a, like, trapped sequence moving towards an expanded universe because of a momentous event that is going to change the arc of history kind of shit. Yeah. You know, like all the buttons are being pressed, but in the like deeply fuck you satirical fashion. Yeah. And so right. in, in the course of that arc, we are approaching the call. <laughs> right. We are at steps. the call. <laughs> yeah. Right. Here is the call. The call, the letter call. Right. So what is the call? How do you understand this? Like what what do you glean from this at this point? So it seems like lictors are like the emperor's top knights. They're like, um, mm-hmm. oh, fuck, what are they mm-hmm. called in 40K? Uh, best of the best with honors. 
right? There are lieutenants. There are primarchs. There primarchs. Are that's what I was primarchs thinking Primarchs in like, 40K. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're basically our primarchs. Yeah. And again, this is literally 40K. I'm going to later argue that, like, step by step, we can point to every comparison that a lawyer would point to if they wanted to do copyright yeah. infringement. Um, uh, but yeah, they are our primarchs. And so the emperor is calling for the the cavalier and the uh like the head necromancer person whatever from each house to come and like test their shit out mm. to see if they're worthy of becoming lictors right and they're all right. going to go to the first house arms. yeah they're, right. they're all going to go to the first house yeah and we, we we sort of can glean you know again on multiple readings is some of the lictors have died yeah 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 and the and the emperor is like like, we need more. <laughs> yeah, some of them have died. Some of them are like old and weak, and the and the way that it's presented is like the emperor was so grief stricken that he could not, for a very long time, admit that he needed new lictors, and has now gone to fucking emperor therapy or whatever. It's like figured his shit out, and it's like <laughs> let's get let's get some new let's get some new guys. You have no fucking idea how true that is oh good uh, i'm so excited there. oh god we're so gonna fucking get there i think the, the emperor undying is one of the best characters in the gideon series they make a appearance at the end of the book and are primary characters in the second and third parts and in the third book have one of the best running gags in any book i've ever read and i will reference it at least once a day until i die amazing um, so i can't wait till you get to the third book so that i can reference it for you um but anyway yes the emperor undying the lictor the primarch lictor the lictor eternal the prince uh who who defeated death blah like etc etc ad infinitum has asked you to step the fuck up that is our message as this is happening, the the Cavalier's mom freaks the fuck out. You can't take my boy. You can't take my boy. You can't take my boy. Uh, <laughs> so they steal the I'm shuttle and fuck everything. off. And <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> and uh, Harrow is talking to Gideon, and Gideon starts to have the 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 horrible realization of what she's about to be asked to do in that she is to become the new cavalier of the house of the ninth and go help um go help Hera Hera. become a lictor Hera Harkin yes and I want to you know like full disclosure I barely caught any of the order's story the first time through like I got the Gideon ends up as the Cav, but all of the detail was lost on me. It was um, the first time I caught it today when I was doing the second one through. And again, if you've read the second and third books, it helps. But like, yeah, multiple readings are the way to go. And that's, the, you know, great for this. Um, I love the sequence with Ordis and his mom now that I have actually gotten to comprehend it and internalize it. It's a hilariously funny sequence of like, you know, Hera reads this important missive and Ordis is like, mm, pass? And his mom's like, mm, double pass. And like, Crux, this is why I mentioned importantly that Crux exists. Because like, I want you to understand like, Crux is like, you fucking nitwit. Like, get up and do your thing. Like, right. suck it up, you know? And like, 
there's this huge, hilarious conflict. And it's, again, one of my favorite moments where, like, Gideon, who's, like, you know, coming out of getting their ass kicked, is, like, loving the fact that they get to watch this fucking drama. Like, right. they get to enjoy things not going to plan for Harrow, essentially. Um, and in that moment, Harrow, of course, looks out across them and, and like, sees Gideon and, like... The impression is they come to the solution to the problem, which is take Gideon instead. Right. You know, as a, like, again, troll slash maybe actually a functional solution because Gideon doesn't suck as much as they act like they do. And they steal Gideon's shuttle. So, again, Gideon was going to get on a shuttle. So, we know there is interplanetary travel of some sort. Yep. And Gideon was going to use it and then got tricked out of using it. And now Ordis and his mother have s- snuck away on that ship. Essentially, Gideon realizes that, like, if I'm ever going to get the fuck out of here, I guess I'm going to have to do this thing. And so she shows, shows up to start training. And she, like, the previous cavalier apparently had a shitty sword. Ortis, again, yeah. Garbage rubber sword. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Gideon starts training to be a cavalier. Yeah. And this is a interesting sequence. So what happens is Iglamenes, the sword master... Gideon and Harrow go down into the crypts to find a weapon. There's a lot of important things that happen here that I want to mention. So first of all, just broadly speaking, we learn that, like, notice the levels of technology, like the conflict between levels of technology that are taking place in this world. Yeah. They're riding some sort of weird metal lift based on a weird drill system down into some crypt where they're looking for a literally fucking metal sword. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So there are limitations on what resources are available to them, essentially. And also what kind of sword are they looking for? Do you have a sense of, like, what... Like, there's a whole discussion about swords throughout the course of this book. Like, what is Gideon's preferred sword versus what is the sword that is being thrust upon Gideon? Well, I know she's into long swords, which is, like, legitimately, like, the longer, heavier sword that you use two hands for. And the a cavalier uses a rapier, which is, like, the basically the sword that's meant to, like, stab and poke, not slash and cut. Um, and, and there's, so there's, there's discussion, a discussion about that. And, uh, that's one among many things that get Gideon is deeply fucking unstoked about. And then there's like the secondary weapon that they talk about, uh, which is like the, these like claw knuckle things that she ends up with. And like the claw knuckle thing is a bit of a like funny, like side joke thing. The sword thing is the really important symbol. I think here, what is your sense of like the symbol symbology? <laughs> If we will. What's the uh, symbology there? What's the symbology of the <laughs> fucking oh, Boondock Saints prince. reference? <laughs> Jesus, Aaron. Going deep on that tat there, buddy. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah, what is the symbology of broad longsword versus rapier here in your mind? I had not considered that there was symbology there. So just go ahead and educate me. It is a substantial class and also deeply meaningful issue for later parts of the book. Oh, um, fuck. Of course. Okay. You see the class part, yep. at least. Yep. You say it and it makes perfect sense. It just had not occurred to me before. Right. The long sword is a weapon of the rank and file. Yeah. The rapier is a weapon of the gentle person in this context right um the elite if you will yep. right the ones who can 
train for such finesse. It's a finesse weapon, yeah. right? Dexterity, blah, blah, blah. It will have another really, really important meaning to it that will not make sense until you've read the entire book. Okay. Um, but so we'll put a we'll put a rapier in that for now. Um but yeah, Gideon's super pissed off. They have to abandon their beloved fucking longsword, which I love so much and is a beautiful symbol of this thing, so that they have to pick up this shitty rapier and knuckle dagger, which is what they're gonna end up with after a hilarious sequence of Eclamines being like, look, it's gonna suck hard enough to try to teach them rapier. Don't let me teach them rapier and like other things that are way too complicated for them. Right. Um, where we also simultaneously learn that Gideon is the best swordsman that the Ninth House has produced in a long time. Yeah. You know, like they're not bad. It's just they're being asked to do something absurd, which is transition from one kind of master swords person to another kind in like three months. Yeah. Um, and speaking of being extremely gay, the banter throughout all of this. Right. Just. Uh, Super gay, right? Yeah. Everyone wants okay. to fuck everyone in, in the you, scene. You are aware of that in part because of queer theory. Like, we'll, we'll put a pin in this. People are like, I'm going to hilariously pop a pin later where it's going to be like, you can't be right. And I'm like, yes, it's true. Queer theory is so necessary because this is the reality we live in. Um, but the fact that you think that is beautiful and I love you for it. Um, yeah. Again, smoldering gayness from the first get-go of this. From the, like, there's a moment way back when Gideon is trying to bribe Crux into letting them go. And the offer is frontline titties of the fifth or something like that like, a, yeah. like a, a skin mag for necromantic soldiers or some shit um that's I, just a hell of a concept thank you for saying that string of words god i this fucking book cuts deep like a fucking broadsword um yeah so what we also learn is that like all the weapons are shitty they're all rotted and like we learn that the ninth house is not produced soldiers of any sort for any period of time recently so for some reason there's a winding down of the ninth house that we don't fully understand yet which we will later but what we're gonna you know what eventually is gonna happen is that Gideon's gonna get a like decent reforging of Ordis's grandmother's sword which is a like black bladed ebony looking rapier that they have to spend all their time training for essentially yeah because wasn't it kind of understood that this grandmother was like the last cavalier the ninth house that had that was great and after the that, last been decent all source person yeah yep. yeah exactly. um so well, yeah ordis's father was also decent but okay ordis was not his father's son as okay. it says. Um, ordis prefers shitty poetry and his mother's company to doing yeah. the thing so, you know, we get the the big like months long training montage or whatever, and then they do some prayers and fun junk and then they are off. They are on the off shuttle space. on the way to the first house. And that is we where leaving we will... the like training slash learn how to play the game zone and moving into the broader universe. What's that stage of the the hero's journey called? I don't remember. Fuck it. You know, it's the like I don't get to fuck anybody in space part of the journey. <laughs> Sad. That's the saddest part of the story. That's so sad. Yeah, and we're going to learn some details about necromancy in that, but we can save those for part two, where we're going to learn all about some fucking necromancy. But I think we've got enough here to talk about gayness, right? <laughs> Absolutely, we do. <laughs> You're like every moment of every day. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, when when is, the, when is the answer to that question? No, I am, I am lost. 
Yeah, so I guess we should talk some queer theory. Kelly, do you want to go ahead and grok it? I'll grok it so hard. <laughs> grok it fucking all the way. Like, May thy knife chip and shatter. I mean, the fact that grokking is a phrase for fucking should not be left off the table, <laughs> I think. Right? right, 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 right. So we are barely into fully through Act 1. There's technically another chapter of Act 1, but we're going to save it for Part 2 and talk about queer theory because holy shit is the story about queer theory. And as, you know, the cis but queer person on this podcast i'm gonna enjoy cisplaining to you how much this is about queer theory yeah let's go <laughs> as someone who literally is a person with a podcast named queer splaining um quite got and i want to point out i actually always google our philosophical topics to try to vaguely remember if i've done an episode of philosophers in space about this topic in the 200 plus episodes we've done hilariously in this case in this case we did an episode on queer related stuff oh did we very impressive individual oh did we named named callie Wright. uh episode 21 (laughs) folks check it out it's a great episode about dax and star trek which just doesn't go far enough but also is mostly about queer personhood so we didn't talk about queer theory a lot on that one so i feel totally fine about 200 episodes later coming back to discuss queer theory with my now liege and lord and captain and whatever (laughs) sibling (laughs) callie queer right of the queer 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 podcast <laughs> uh, I, I hope you haven't. I'm not sure I have ever been more dis- been better or more completely described in my life, Aaron. Thank you for that gift. I don't know if you've caught that all of the names in this book are deeply symbolic or not. Um, we can save that for part two. Certainly, I'll put a pin in it. But like prefixes, suffixes, nothing is left you know, unused in the linguistic symbolism of this story. Oh Um, yeah. That's one of those things that like I imagined was there. And like, I just had to, at some point internalize that subconsciously and not hold on to it because as discussed, there's so fucking much of it. Yep. There are nine houses and you're not gonna remember who belongs to which, even though they give you special names just to help you. (laughs) And that's okay. It's okay because we're gay. Um, Let's talk about queer theory. What does queer theory mean, Callie? <laughs> Here's a fun starting question. Define queer theory. <laughs> I don't know. I So an important thing about me is like a lot of my education is done just through like following really smart people on social media, reading blogs, podcasts. I thought you were going to say mouthfeel, but sure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that's, that's part of it, to be honest. Um, so all of that's to say that like, any sort of like academic texts or anything on that, like I've probably not read and I would probably be conceptually familiar with, but like it wouldn't be able to point back to anything. And so I don't know that I have like, like a, a tight 30 second, like elevator pitch for what queer theory is. But for me, it, it really just comes back to how, how you define what queer is and what it means to move through the world as a queer person. Mm hmm. Yeah, and that's, again, not on you, much like your awareness of what all is happening in this book. Like, queer theory is not easily defined and and not singularly defined, like many movements. And, like, the word queer is also complicated, right? So, 
totally acceptable. Like I was clearly trolling you like this book with the question itself, but it is worth diving into because this is not only in a very, very influential and important philosophical and cultural and social movement, um, but also one that's having a bit of a moment, um, moral panically speaking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So queer theory, right? Queer theory is, there's there's a couple of ways you could describe queer theory. One is, uh, this is from Jay Stewart. And again, I personally don't think, you know, when you're looking at a very broad concept like this, Wikipedia is not the worst place you can go because through endless culture war they will boil a concept down to the truly generalized part of it yeah um so they provide this quote from jay stewart queer theory and politics necessarily celebrate transgression in the form of visible difference from norms these norms are then exposed to be norms not natures or inevitabilities gender and sexual identities are seen in much of this work to be demonstrably defiant definitions and configurations I love that. Yeah. Basically what it's saying is fuck normativity, right? Yeah. Um, And like broadly speaking, I think one way you could understand queer theory is really just a critique of the idea that cis or like primarily originally heterosexuality, but also sexual norms and cisness as a gender identity are not the norm and should not be treated as the norm. That, I think, is the core of the ethos. You know, screw any system that takes these things as, again, natural or inevitable. Yeah, and that makes sense, especially for someone like me who, you know, I'm white. I grew up lower middle class, so, like, not in extreme poverty. And so, like, there are definitely, like, privileges that I grew up with. And a lot of my unpacking of that has started with being queer and being trans because those are the things about me um, mm-hmm. that are the place where I've had to confront that I am not typical in society. And that's mm-hmm. like where kind of all of my unpacking started. And so it, it like I see lots of things through that lens because realizations about almost everything else started there. Um, and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, well, if, if I'm questioning this one norm, what other norms should I be questioning? Um, and so that's where you get fun. Con- drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun things like like queering the Applebee's, which is a thing I've heard some people on Twitter talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about queering the canon here for yeah. sure. But yeah, right. That's downstream of queering the, uh, like upstream of queering the Applebee's, yeah. I suppose. Um, yeah. And that is very much what is like. Queer theory, like if we wanted to put it in the taxonomy of academic theories, it would fit into the category of critical theories. Yeah. Which have, again, also had a moment recently <laughs> on all fronts. Yeah. Um, by which we mean theories that critique primarily the norms of society as power relations. Yeah. Right. Understands, in this case, sexuality and gender as power relations. Um, and seeks to destabilize those power relations so as to expand the field of acceptable genders, sexualities, lifestyles, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's our, like, big, like, view from the sky picture of kind of what's going on here. And again, I think it's always important to note, even if that is what our broad consensus is, a lot of the, like, specific philosophers we might talk about over the course of this weren't necessarily thinking in those terms and often were not 
I'm like actively not thinking in those terms. So like one of our big figures in queer theory is gonna be Foucault, who is very much against the idea of broad arches, narratives, etc., and like criticizes those as power relations in themselves. So like a lot of the folks here are more about criticizing specific pieces, events, behaviors within society without necessarily turning it into our grand hero narratives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's go deeper, right? Deeper into Draper, right? The most depressing place in the world. So what are like the specific sub parts of queer theory? Like in the critique of the norms, in the critique of like heteronormativity, let's say, what are the like things that you think of that are like big key points? I'm curious if like any intuitively like come to you and then I can talk about some of the like the specific ones that are often referenced. You mean just like like subcategories? Well, like what are the key claims? Like what is queer theory gonna like argue for in problematizing our normativity essentially? Oh, I mean it- anything related to gender norms Mm -hmm. one of the things that i end up arguing with with folks sometimes is there's the the idea that like trans folks shouldn't be necessarily under the same umbrella as like gay or bi people um because it's you know because it's like gender and not sexuality but Mm. I, I would argue the reason that we belong together is because the the root cause of our marginalization is that we're stepping outside of gender norms. Mm, right. Similarly to the way that I will argue that like atheists should be in common cause with LBGDQ individuals because our root evil big bad is white Christian nationalism. Um, right. And, and why I am also on board with the idea of the the notion that like atheists or secular humanists or like however folks want to define should also to whatever degree makes sense locally be in community with members of minority faiths uh in their communities like it like as long as you're like actual social goals are the same in terms of like inclusion and stuff and like we're on the the same page morally and ethically like um if i'm an atheist i should be cool working with my like universe unitarian universalist (laughs) friends you know like that kind of thing Right, exactly. And this like highlights that one of the aspects of queer theory, though not originally the goal, is that it has a fundamental sort of social justice orient to it. As part of the critical theories, it is aiming to arguably improve society by highlighting the ways. So like when people say critical theory, I would argue the fundamental thing they're looking at is how do power relations reproduce inequality? Right. The question is, intergener- like Al Alusair, who is a precursor to folks that often get brought up in, in these discussions, is essentially interested in like, why is it like, why does the, the large, like literally it's the, you know, like the Futurama meme. Why does the larger proletariat not simply overthrow and eat <laughs> right, the, right, right, the, yeah. the clearly smaller population, right? Yeah. And the answer is culture, right? A bunch of fucking culture that like prevents that from happening. Right. And so queer theory, like most critical theories is about problematizing that culture for the sake of hopefully, I think bringing about a more genuinely equitable society by removing systems that primarily were put in place arguably during colonialism to limit human behavior for the sake of colonial capitalist gains. Yep. And that's 
That's what this book is about alongside pedagogy. The other thing this book is about, as, as all young adult novels, is it's about pedagogy and how much it sucks to be in high school. Yeah. So, like, yeah, destabilizing these things. And that destabilization, a lot of it takes place in the form of the things that we are all aware of in the culture wars, though I think in the past month or two it's taken a little bit of a ceasefire as we wait for the next elections. But it's your standard issue, is gender real and should we take it seriously questions? You know, like these are the people who are going to show up and be like, hmm, male and female, that sounds like bullshit, actually. Um, you know, and go from there, essentially. Yeah. Right. The history, if you want to talk about it a little bit, like, unfortunately, ironically, the history is a non-queer history <laughs> to some extent. So like your first text that often gets cited in queer theory is actually Freud, um, who, you know, I'm not going to say we have to hand it to Freud in any way, because uh, you know we kn you know what he wants us to hand it to him and all, but like right. yeah yeah <laughs> right. He was one of the first people to kind of be like mm, these views about gayness. Maybe they're not true. Maybe it's like maybe there's a psychological explanation that doesn't involve demons and involves like stupid bullshit about repression and your parents and stuff. But like again, problematizing. And then you get folks like Foucault, who comes along with like a book about the theories about sex, uh, the history of sexuality it's called, um, which has some interesting parts. I actually read part of it as part of my course studies. It's got some stuff that I want to talk about that is not ideal, um, but again, is about looking at the way in which culture moving from colonialism into modern biopower, by which I mean the state's ability to look at things at scale using statistics and science and then fuck with people accordingly, um, is using that power to control gender and sexuality, essentially, and problematize those things. That's a big like text that gets cited a lot within queer theory. From there, we get Sedgwick. Sedgwick writes a book, The Epistemology of the Closet, which gets heavily, heavily cited. And I actually sent you uh, one of our cultural touchstones I think is worth pointing to a little bit is an article from 1998. Because it's worth noting, queer theory arises in the 90s out of philosophy of the 80s. So it's fairly recent, relatively speaking. Yeah. And yet not unlike all things in grimdark you're gonna listen to my what i'm gonna describe and you're like fuck culture war never changes it just never fucking ends um but yeah the sedgwick writes this book epistemology of the closet uh which sort of raises a bunch of the like what we think of as queering the canon like hey these characters who you were thinking of as just being like men on a boat together maybe they're fucking gay maybe you should think about the fact they're super clearly very gay together kind of stuff um so it's that perhaps two people on a starship yeah. named the enterprise mm. one's a captain one's a science officer one's got <laughs> pointy ears just oh hypotheticals out really? there really do you think there's something going on between them? I thought they were just really, really close friends. Um, and like, Who's I want to highlight. Say? <laughs> right. Here's where I think it's worth dropping a point. Because like some people, as we will get to the moral panic stuff, think that queer theory is terrible and should be abandoned. Queer theory is essential and is incredibly important. And the perfect example to go back to Gideon I was listening to an interview and Tamsin Mir was like, when I sent this out to people, some publishers came back with like, 
They love, they fucking love the sisterly relationship between Harrow and Gideon. Oh, my sweet summer child. <laughs> right. That should cut fucking deep for you. Right? Oh. That should hurt. When I heard that, I was fuck. like, oh my God, we need so much more queer theory in the drinking water. Holy shit. Anyone who says words can't be violence needs to hear that. <laughs> right. Could you make a better poster for why we need queer theory than someone read this book and thought the like literally did the meme of oh these people are lifelong roommates you know like <laughs> right. what what close friends they were they were buried together in a cemetery oh how sweet oh, god yeah. yeah although I will say right? like I feel and like you haven't read the last third of this book yet either right I feel like I need to at least make a token acknowledgement that. I've heard some pushback to that notion that I don't hate in that, like we also like don't often get to see like just actually yes. wholesome platonic friendships for between sure. women and like, especially sh- men too. Yeah. Men too. Yeah. 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 yeah this is a um, huge thing for men, right? And, All wholesome male relationships are coded as gay. Right. Now. And so like, th- th- it's at least worth like giving a second thought to those sorts of things, but also like, it is very, very clear. Like we're not, we're not reading more into the author's intent than is there. We are reading the author's intent very plainly, and she is making no effort to hide it. <laughs> I'm gonna try to ask you a question without spoiling. Have you gotten to the pool scene yet? I have not. Great, and great, I'm great. so fucking excited. Actually, you know what? I, look I think I to part stopped. two where you're like, "Holy shit, what is wrong with the gay with the straights? Like, holy fucking shit, what is going on here?" I actually think where I stopped is right around the beginning of that scene because I remember a mention of a pool, or but I don't like. I, I think I remember very much like I heard the first couple of sentences of the scene setting, and I was like, "Oh, this feels like a good place to stop." Yeah. We learn about the pool when we're describing Canaan House. There is a pool scene that is in a, you know like explicitly the pool scene that everyone understands is the pool scene in Gideon. Okay. When Sick. when you get there, you're going to be like, "What is wrong with people who thought this was a straight relationship?" Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to it for you. Um, in the meantime, anyway, back to queer in the canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so queer theory. Right. We have this idea. You know, another one I wanted to cite was Butler, um, Gender Troubles, um, the famous concept, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. So okay, yeah, I've heard that. We're Right, we're not just criticizing the concept of, n- like, naturalized sexuality, but also naturalized gender and gender roles. Um, that all of these are kind of enacted performative behaviors. And again, often on this show, we talk about like the soft version of something and the strong version of something, right? There's a soft version of queer theory, which is like, hey, maybe y'all should let off on all this essentialist bullshit a little bit. And there's a hard version, which is more like all assignments of deviant sexuality are historically and socially constructed. And I don't want to back off of that because it should make you nervous. Okay. I, I see where you're going with that, I think. Yeah. So a critical analysis of the constructed nature of gender and sexuality taken to the extreme does get you to a place of maybe pedophilia is okay. <laughs> and I, I say this with a, like, with a lot of trepidation because, again, there's a moral panic going on right now where queer theory is being cited as 
an attempt to promote pedophilia, right? Literally outright. Um, and I bring this up because Foucault, our friend who wrote the history of sexuality, also was very critical of age of consent laws and thought that they were an overreach of the state and literally is quoted as saying, it is intolerable to assume that a minor is incapable of giving meaningful consent to sexual relations. Yeah. Well, and that's, I right. mean, that's the, the argument that a lot of the folks who are like openly trying to justify this make is that it is simply a different sexual orientation. Yeah. And I'm going to make things so much worse by not saying Foucault is totally wrong. <laughs> because look, I was a minor at one point who consented to sexual activity and I consented. And I think that minors can consent to certain kinds of sexual activity in certain ways, primarily with other minors. But that is a very, very complicated conversation to have. I don't agree with Foucault that like all of this is purely constructed. As a thoroughgoing moral realist, I will take the view that like there are objective truths about what you ought to do and ought not to do to people based on the harm that will be caused, but also believe that like consent laws are a complicated pragmatic ethical situation, and we know this because we have things like rules where certain individuals if they acknowledge their relationships in the right ways can have relationships with minors. It shows up in a fucking Transformers movie. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Inaccurately. There are specific too, laws. If memory, if memory serves. Probably. They, but uh, also, like, they, they like totally misquote what the law actually says. Sure. And if I want to be more horrifying about it, I can just point out that like child brides are still a thing in our country because of yeah. Christianity. Yeah. You know, like people can consent to horrifying things, but also they're not consenting. And also minors can consent to sexual behaviors with other minors. I was a 13-year-old who consented to physical sexual activity with a 15-year-old and do not believe that I failed to consent in that context. Oh, yeah, same. Like, when I was 16, you know, I my the, my sure. first high school girlfriend was 15, you know, and, like, uh, I, I, feel, I feel very good and I, like, I went out of my way and I feel like I actually kind of almost ruined the moment because I would not stop asking her to make sure if she was okay with it. Yeah. Um, and, like, that's a very different situation from what Foucault describes in The Histories of Sex, where I read this, where you're like, oh, I don't think it's great that the society gets involved in this situation, this hypothetical sort of where he describes a, like, I want to say mentally disabled individual at the who goes to the outskirts of town and pays young girls to physically touch them or something like that. Like, it's a very vague but also doesn't seem like above board like maybe 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 society should involve in themselves in this Foucault maybe not to imprison anybody but like to make sure no harm is being done kind of situation right. and I do think there's a there's a problem where this idea of like concern about the use of power and a lot of this is related to sexuality because a lot of like um I should also note there's a letter that often gets cited as something that Foucault signed, though he didn't, though other folks did, including Simone de Beauvoir, the famous philosopher, which essentially was a criticism of France's age of consent laws at the time, but was partly about the ways in which like sodomy was specifically being criminalized for certain individuals in certain age groups. But also, again, I think was really taking seriously the idea that Con like even age of consent is a social construct and needs to be problematized in this way 
And, like, there are, I think, reasonable ways to talk about that and not reasonable ways to talk about that. And that is a hard conversation to have. Um, But, you know, I think it's worth talking about, especially when we're talking about a book where, contrary to what the descriptions might give at some points, the protagonists are 17 and 18 years old. They are literally barely legal. And there are characters in part two and three that we will discuss that are not legal and still involved in, in romantic relationships. Yeah. So I just think it's, you know, I I bring this up partly because in discussing the philosophy of queer theory as a practical world thing, we have to discuss the moral panic aspect of it. And that is often they will use this stuff to point to as like proof that this will lead to pedophilia. And I think if we ignore that part of the history, we're not preparing ourselves to deflect or to parry those particular objections by saying, look, that was a particular place and time concept and we don't have to buy into those claims to understand the nuances of these larger issues. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think the the arguments seem to be not about whether or not to draw the lines, but where to draw the lines. Like, mm-hmm. uh, cause I, I, I mean, I don't think there's a person in the world who actually thinks that there is a meaningful difference between, you know, 17 years and 364 days old and 18 years old you know what i mean Um, right your problem with the heaps yeah (laughs) yeah Mm. i don't i don't i guess that that, that's a new a new enough concept to me that i'm not sure that i can not sure that i feel like it would be responsible to like go on and on about what my thoughts are on it but i mean like along with the like typical right-wing style moral panic that um that we're talking about there's also like a moral panic happening in a younger generation of queer folks um Mm -hmm. where there is um a a weird sort of puritanism that has come up um Mm -hmm. where well they will literally say like if a 17 year old and an 18 year old have sex because that age of consent is that like that is like just the same as sexual assault. Um, like, mm. like, like, I, like I've seen, and I don't know the number of people like, like such that this is such a huge problem, but like, for example, I personally know a person who put, po- um, who stopped posting on TikTok because every single time she talked about sex in even the most oblique and abstract way. Oh, a minor saw this video. So you're a groomer. And and this isn't like a Republican style thing. Um, these right. are like younger queer folks who I think are having the like pendulum swing reaction from the hypersexualization of queer folks. And yeah, if interesting. The hypersexualization doesn't feel good, which is like there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't have to feel good to anyone. Where the reaction right. is not to like find the space that is for you, but to declare that you're personally wronging me by being that because I'm not that that's where I end up on the other side of that argument that like, you know, the fact that my ex-wife and I were four years apart from each other in age is not like not actually a problem, especially because we were both in our thirties. Like, Right. And as an academic, I have to deal with the opposite part of this, which is like every six months or so somebody will post about how it's okay to sleep with your students. And I'm just like, yeah. Why God? Why necromantic God? Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. But like, no, I think this is very valuable. And actually, whether it's Tamsin's direct goal or not, I think Gideon provides us a really useful, like, 
touchstone for this because a you could argue as a young adult lesbian novel if that's true then this is a groomer novel in a lot of ways right. yeah you know right but also in this novel you you have a portrayal of both kinds of queerness both the hypersexualized version and i would argue somewhere on the demi a spectrum for harrow like i more you'll see it even more i think when you get to book two i would have a lot of things that make me think that Dara was uh Hera was demi yeah and like Gideon is very explicitly hypersexual in a lot of ways yeah. and so there is that tension and like in the book even though it is a very queer book there's very little overt sexuality in a way that i don't mind quite as much as it, we talked about in like crown shy um but i do love that Tamron like loves in book two that they get to actually do a little bit more of that kind of thing mm -hmm. in a very arch metaphorical kind of way. Uh, but still like, yeah, this is a chaste book in a lot of ways and it still is very hot, but it, it does play to an audience that I think like, well, let me put it this way. I think philosophically it plays into the, the fact that this is like high fantasy slash, space opera it's very romanticism you know like you have a romanticism kind of approach to relationships here no i agree yeah and, and it's yeah. interesting that you use the word chaste because i had a like a visceral reaction to that like no the fuck it's not what are you talking about but i was like no actually i mean like if you're talking about like actual sexual contact between characters happening at least in what i've what i've gotten through uh i've not really seen it but despite that, it still feels like there's sexual energy throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah. And so it and doesn't the scene feel is not going to change that for you at all. Yeah. Like, it's not going to shift that. You're going to understand exactly what I mean yeah. simultaneously and always. So, like, yeah, I think that's fine, too, because our narrator is not that. Right, it's okay that the world is that because our narrator is our protagonist perspective and is meant to be a criticism of what I think is a very Victorian world. And again, to go back to queer theory, a lot of what queer theory is criticizing is Victorianism. <laughs> like when we think of queer versus heteronormative, like here's a fun question. Where did heter heteronormativity come from, Callie? I mean, I want to say Christianity, but I also feel like there were other other cultures not touched by colonialism that ended up kind of looking in a no, similar how way. Critical theory of you, <laughs> how thoroughly post structuralist of you. Uh, yes, you're right on all fronts. Right, it's simultaneously Christianity's fucking fault and everywhere. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stupid arguments that happen around questions like where did gender come from, where did race come from, where did sexuality come from. Where, like, there are two answers. One is it's fucking everywhere from the beginning of civilization. And two, a particularly virulent version of it emerges in the 14 and 1500s in colonial Europe and spreads from there in the worst way possible. And so when we talk about the modern conception of heteronormativity or the modern conception of sexuality or race, what we mean is this, again, very much, in my opinion, for the sake of exploitation of wealth, right? Um, there's a really cool article that I read that was like, heteronormativity kind of arises because a bunch of British dudes have to go live in non-British places and not be corrupted. And so we're going to create heteronormativity to prevent them from fucking around with femboys and whatnot. Right, okay. Um, you know... 
But like a lot of people will point to the Victorian period as like the reification of the two spheres of gender, you know, your women live at home and are chaste and are the embodiment of purity. And the men go out into the dark world and do the hard work and are sullied by it, but also blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, every fucking terrible gender thing you think of Victorianism, partly maybe directly the result of Queen Victoria herself being a huge fucking prude, which again, I think is playing out in these books. So I think, Gideon as a queer theory text is supposed to be a criticism of high fantasies obsession with Victorian era tropes and an inversion of all, as many of those tropes as we possibly can. And as a horseshoe theory exemplar of like, I think I mentioned before, space operas are high fantasy. There's no daylight between them except that some of them are in space and the other ones are in forests. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, right down to the, like, think of Game of Thrones, if anyone can remember that thing that was very popular for a while, right? This is Game of Thrones in space, right? There's a bunch of houses. You can't remember who who's fucking who. And, like, you have vague menacing vibes and vaguely sexual vibes. And, like, the people try to kill each other for some reason. I had not made that connection, but you are correct. <laughs> right? It is 100% high fantasy. And, again, 40K is just, you know, Warhammer fantasy, which is high fantasy, taken to space yeah thereby proving that they are the same thing on a different scale um you know so when i say like you can't keep track of the names it's a feature not a bug yeah um the names are all symbolic and all meaningful but on your first read through there's no expectation that you should follow them just like token or any other high fantasy and then like we get into like what is high fantasy and, and space operas doing and as we talked about when we did 40K, it's often this weird mix of, like, the hero's journey plus kind of unreconstructed authoritarian simping, in a sense, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, because like, that, that's a, a question that I have. Maybe this, is a, maybe this is a discussion for a different part of the episode because this is uh, maybe in theory, I guess, should have come up before now. I have a hard time squaring a character like Gideon existing in an environment like that, right? Like where does she learn to be that rebellious and that much of a Innate. thorn in fucking everyone's side, right? Because I can imagine like I can imagine someone being a little bit transgressive, a little bit rebellious and and that kind of building over time and like, you know, I teach my kid to be a little bit more rebellious than I was like that sort of thing. Um, sure. But yeah, I just, I, I wonder how a character like that builds up the, the courage and, or even like the knowledge uh, of have how to do that. And I will say it is a mix of their mysterious origin and their environment. Okay. Right. Like they come by their rebellious nature very fucking honestly. And then, are put in a situation of like stupid rules and like a really like drearber, like many names in this, which is the name of the house they're in dreary. Like that's what it's, that's what it's a reference to. Yeah, right? yeah. It's a dreary fucking house. And if you're a precocious little shit, like 
Gideon, of course you're going to try to escape that, like, terrible prison over and over and over again. But yeah, as we will find out later, they come by this as a result also of their heritage. But yeah, it's a good question, and it is it is the key that turns this whole story, right? The, the, like, what inverts all of this is... Every, you know, it's sort of like what people talk about Muppet movies, where it's like everybody's a Muppet except one person, right? Gideon's <laughs> the one non-Muppet in the right. story, yeah, yeah. right? Like everyone's a fucking necromantic Muppet except for Gideon. Um, like everybody is playing to the bit. Everybody is on script except Gideon, and that's why it works. There's also a long tradition there, I would argue, in things like Commedia dell'arte of the the enlightened servant, you know, so when you're looking at cultural satires of royals, of feudal systems, of the mercantile capitalist systems that aped those systems, your scapinos are going to be your servants who are like, this is dumb. Y'all are dumb. I'm going to get mine and have as much sex as I can along the way. Right. Like, it is a very classic comedian alarte character. Also worth noting, they're literally wearing masks of a commedia larte style throughout these stories. Oh yeah, they that, the but they're wearing paint. paints. Yeah. They are they are the most goth but unironically characters you could ever imagine. They're wearing skull masks and full on black clothing yeah, and, the, and the black flowy robes and yeah. Oh yeah, the full <laughs> nines except Gideon you know, who, as we will find out, is willing to, like, counter that down to their choice of ways to protect their eyes from the sun. But again, the point is queering everything, yeah. right? Queering not just in terms of problematizing gender and sexuality, but in terms of the whole system, right? Gideon is a thorn in the side of the entire structure. And, it, you know, like, historically, you could argue that mercantile capitalism to some extent involves out of feudalism which is the system that we're currently seeing in this society right we have an emperor we have royals serfs and slaves so like all of this i think is this hilarious kind of queer critique of modern western culture in this way i should mention a couple of critiques of queer theory that go along i think with the kind of foucault story that i talked about yeah. there you know, your critiques of queer theory are going to be things like it overturns society's traditional views of sex and sexuality. You know, no one will be stigmatized no matter what they do. We're not going to care about social approval. They think society is inherently repressive. But in this epidemic, specifically in regard to the AIDS crisis in this case, it is impossible to advocate a system in which everything is okay. So... One concern historically about queer theory is that in pushing against, like many critical theories, current moral norms, it pushed for a kind of transgressive behavior that was probably genuinely harmful to a lot of the people involved in it. Whether that was excessive drug use and, like, putting themselves at risk of getting, of contracting AIDS or things like that, like... That's a real genuine problem concern that I, I often come up to... In moral re as a moral realist in a critical theory domain, in a critical theory world, where I'm like, y'all don't really genuinely mean cultural relativism. Like, y'all will talk about criticism of objective morality, but y'all don't really fucking mean that, do you? Well, and unfortunately, some of them do. <laughs> well, and and I think the the response to that is just that, like, I I think it's great to question literally any societal norm but we do have to be open to some of them after being questioned that they might hold up 
right? Right. Um, right. The argument is not anything goes. The argument is there are a lot of things that mm-hmm. don't that should, but not that like any behavior is okay. Like I, I don't feel like, at least for the most part, <laughs> people don't seem to advocate that as being like the natural endpoint where like literally everything is okay. I don't think they don't. I don't think they do either. I think a lot of critical folks who will, you know, sort of mouth the language of cultural relativism don't actually believe it. And if you ask them, like, wait, you're really in favor of pedophilia because this culture says it's okay, they're going to be like, no. You know, right. they're not going to take the Foucault. Like, and that's why I brought up the Foucault stuff earlier. Foucault will bite that fucking bullet if he has to and be like, yeah, 12 and 13-year-olds can consent. But not everyone wants to do that. And most people don't in the modern world. And I think most people recognize that, like, I should also mention part of Foucault's critique of consent, which I think actually bears out in a modern discussion of like overemphasis on consent in our sexual discourse. He sort of argues that like consent is primarily a contractual concept and so not a sufficient measure of whether harm was being conducted, which is true. Like you can think of situations where someone consented but was harmed by the behavior. Oh, you yeah. shouldn't treat it as a good behavior because of that. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, he also says things like no one makes contracts before making love, which is not true. Um, right. In a, like, in a reasonable interpretation of the concept of contracts. But like he was, again, pushing back on a very bureaucratic view of a lot of these things and trying to say we shouldn't overly bureaucratize these very complex issues. And I think you could argue that some of the kinds of like, quote unquote, wokeness that arise out of the critical theory stuff don't take his warning and end up in this, like like you were saying, very, you know, overly policing kind of place. But, at, like, this is all very complicated. At, at the flip side, I mentioned that 1998 article from New York Times about, uh, it was primarily an interview of um, Sedgwick, who I should mention, even though they wrote that book, was an interestingly interesting individual, individual as, as a person because... They're the sort of individual where they had not had non-heterosexual interactions, but talked about experiencing fantasies that they would consider queer, and so identified as queer as a result, which you could recognize as kind of the beginning of the discourse of, like, is queer being overly broadened to include people who aren't actively engaged in sexual relationships, and should a heterosexual individual an individual in a currently heterosexual relationship who has never had non-heterosexual physical interactions but had non-heterosexual fantasies get to qualify as queer that's sedgwick um but in this interview they also of course quoted the opposition and this is 1998 and guess who they fucking quoted no our dear friend Andrew Sullivan, who for more than 20 plus years has been playing the exact... And this is where, like, history repeats itself. Culture war never ends. Culture war never changes. Here's some quotes from Sullivan as a critic, quote-unquote, of queer theory. He says it's a sect restricted to the academy. So there's your oh boy religion yep. 20 years ahead, which they control as a cartel. Their essential argument, he said, is that the whole notion of gender is wrong... There is no such thing as responsibility, and any attempt to go by the rules is oppressive. Wow. So let's treat those as philosophical claims. Are those accurate descriptions of gender theory? Right? Is gender wrong? What would you say? Is gender wrong? Like, I don't even know what that question means. <laughs> 
I mean, like, my too long don't read answer is yes, right? For enough reasonable definitions of gender, it's wrong, right? Like, if by gender you mean a thing that we have to treat as serious and not just a thing that people are performing and, like, can choose to perform in a variety of different ways, yeah, it's wrong, right? Um, that's that's my opinion. And I, I, I mean, even within queer culture, that's just a debate about, like, you know, how much we can throw this concept out. I mean, it's it's complicated, uh yeah like i say that like i'm fucking imparting wisdom um (laughs) i love i do that in ethics all the time i'm like my my catchphrase for ethics is it's complicated yeah um so don't feel bad because yeah i mean that's that's certainly how i feel about gender is that i'm just like that's silly i'm not gonna do it um but i also Mm. know people who who in a very serious way not in a like cisgender like penis equals man i'm a man like not like i don't take that shit seriously but like right i mean i have lot, lots of trans friends who are like they will say like i love my non-binary friends i don't ever want anyone to treat me as if i'm non-binary because that is not deeply not the way that i feel about my gender and it's not about not liking right. non-binary people it's about that feels wrong to me it feels just as wrong to me as gender does to you and I don't want to downplay. I, I don't want exactly. to downplay the way that those folks experience that that thing that is very meaningful to them, and that's like, I don't, yeah, yep. And I think meaning is the important word here, right? A lot of times for people, gender is a method of meaning making. Yeah. Whether it's societal, you're not just making money, you're making meaning a lot of the time, right? Yeah. yeah I, I get to be the man that I need to be, and that's my narrative, and, right? And that's, and that's the hard thing is because. I would be lying to myself if I said I didn't do that because it's the cultural soup that I've grown up in. I can't just excise the entire idea from my mind as much as I want to, you know, like I still, I still do things to affirm my non-binariness, whatever the fuck that means, which like, Mm -hmm. if I'm honest about my own experience often is about letting go of things that I felt like I was supposed to do when I thought I was a man or whatever. Yeah. But then like on the other side of it is like having left behind that, it also feels transgressive to do stereotypically male things now at this point in my life, which is very, right. It's very weird, right? You're like, you're, you're, Um, you're querying these concepts while also embodying them and it's complicated. Yeah. And and, and so all of that's to say that like, uh, I, I would be wrong if I started to feel a little bit too good about myself and a little bit too like, oh, look how smart and progressive about gender I am. I've left that whole thing behind. I very clearly haven't. I just have mm-hmm. a, 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 a markedly different relationship to it than a lot of folks do, I think. Yeah. And there could also, you know, without even dipping our toe into gender critical stuff, one of the counter arguments would be there's a kind of lived experience that certain individuals who are perceived as being members of a certain gender will a kind of marginalization that they will experience that people who are not perceived as part of that gender will not experience. So this is a classic critique of um, what's called the empty signifier account of things like race and gender, where it's like, yes, it's true that society will literally hang whatever it fucking wants on race and gender at any given point in time for the sake of its purposes. (laughs) Right. But also it is, we can't ignore that that, translates into different lived experiences of marginalization for different individuals and that should be taken into account into our considerations in some way not sure how it's complicated but like yeah 
that's that's not an unreasonable distinction to make for people. So, so for some people, it's that. For other people, it's like, no, I truly have a sense of my gender that feels conflicted by being viewed as genderless. And so we shouldn't abolish the concept of gender entirely as a result. Yeah. Right. But all of those, I think, are various versions of still problematizing of the traditional heteronormative concept of gender. Um, then we have this idea of like, there's no such thing as responsibility, <laughs> which again, you can imagine, I hate as a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say, I, I want to hear you do a, a cool two hours on that sentence. Right. The, the too long don't read is yes, but not the way you mean it, Andrew. <laughs> right. Like right. no one's responsible in the sense that no one deserves to suffer because of the fact that they're born trans or a pedophile for that example, for that matter. Like, sorry, like bad fucking luck, but like we should take care of those as human beings still. But that's not the same as like, it's okay to just willy nilly cause harm a bunch to a bunch of people. Like, right. Yeah. And, and that's and, exactly like, that's obviously the meaningful difference. <laughs> Right. And to tie it back to Gideon, one of the key themes about this book is codependency and toxic relationships. Um, we're going to talk about calves and lictors, you know, calves and, and adepts in part two. But yeah. like the relationship between Harrow and Gideon is complicated and they spend a large part of their lives torturing each other before anything else happens. Um, so like that's not good. And I don't think that queer theory has to say that like. Abuse merely because it's transgressive is therefore good, right. right? To go back to what you were saying about, like, we should question things, but questioning doesn't mean actively transgressing necessarily. There are some right. folks who are like, right, you can't question pedophilia as a concept unless you have sex with minors. I'm like, nope, I think you can thoroughly, you know, deal with this concept without ever engaging in direct analysis. Yeah, I, I have never, will never, and I feel very comfortable have an extraordinarily strong opinion about the, the morality yeah. of that. Uh, objectively correct opinion yeah right based on science um, um, and so that's where we get to like any attempt to go by rules is oppressive which is just flat fucking false yeah right? and, and i think that's the the I, I guess maybe the pendulum swing thing because i think maybe the feeling is being overly like being overly respectful and overly like fawning over a person based on their place in society um, the reaction is not, I'm just going to treat them like any other person. The, per the, the transgressive thing is to completely lose all sense of that respect and, and like turn it into being disrespectful and hateful and, and insulting and all of those sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, how we get from hypersexualization to like Pentecostal <laughs> sexualization. Um, right. That pendulum swing. Yeah. Yeah, and you know you could argue that both of the ends of those pendulums are positions of control for society. Oh yeah, if you're in the hypersexual, you know, like society can market you your frontline titties of the fifth, and like on the other end of the spectrum, they can, you know, you can have the like moral judgment of the people who are reading frontline titties of the fifth. Um, but like, I also just want to note that like the moral panic around queer theory is about a groomer concern, like a concern about groomers. Which comes down to A, this fear of pedophilia, and B, this fear of moral anti realism. Like, fundamentally, the idea that they're gonna undermine all moral judgments and thereby open up the floodgates of abusive behavior, um, which I, I don't think is remotely necessary or part of this theory, though I do think it's true that 
a lot of queer theorists and a lot of critical theorists in general will talk in terms of like anti-realism and cultural relativism because they don't know any better, not because they think pedophilia is okay. Yeah. You know, like they just haven't worked the arguments out to their logical conclusions on that front. Um, before we run out of time, I will also say, to tie it back to Gideon, what this looks like in practice a lot of the time is not having sex with children. It's a book where the characters' genders are incredibly inverted from what you would expect, right? Like, the way this book transcends gender norms is the vast majority of the main characters are female and interested in other women. And, like, it's not your traditional calves are dudes, adepts are women, and they form relationships because they are, you know, soulmates, Yeah, right? That would be your heteronormative young adult story, right? Mm -hmm. And we queer the fuck out of all of that in a variety of ways over the course of this. The only hetero relationship we're going to see in this book is cute, but like cute in a like, this is clearly not what you want kind of way. <laughs> Amazing. Love that. So like queering the canon to me fundamentally means not always the explicit like, oh, we're going to throw a bunch of gay sex in your face, which this book doesn't, but in a very much more smart and subtle like, no, Gideon is a woman and a, like, a shimbo, I think, arguably, <laughs> right? Like, very hot, very dumb. Um, Harrow, you know, very smart, but also fucking lesbian. And then, or ace, you know, probably, uh, as well. And then, like, it's going to be a lot of even increasingly weird, like, gender-swapped stuff. And that's what queer theory, I think, is. is not just, like, looking at the past and being like, these two people were probably not just lifelong roommates, but <laughs> right. also like, no, we're going to, we're going to, you know, like, oh, it's cute that you think female space Marines are a problem. We're going to have female calves and they're right. all going to like so many of them are going to be female. And it makes perfect sense when you find out the entire plot, even if you believe in stupid gender essentialist bullshit. <laughs> Amazing. Well, all right. That's Gideon Ninth Part One. Uh, <laughs> next episode, no huge surprise. We do in Part Two. We we'll get into some. You can see why we're doing three parts on this. Yeah, I will never fucking stop. Get into some. Get into some mystery shenanigans. It's gonna be a great time. Yep, super stoked. Um, but of course, we should first thank some patrons who make this masturbatory lesbian fantasy possible. Thank you to our new monthly fungi. Helen Moffat and a bunch of new free folks who, like I said, have joined the show automatically as a result of being followers on Patreon. Um, but you can go and do that too. And thanks to all of our strong AIs who appear not to exist at all in this world. There's no AIs. I'm sorry. We'll catch you next time, patrons. Um, Randall Nelson Peterman, Big Easy Blasphemy, Grumble Grumble, T for the T God, Plebs for or Pebs for the Peb Throne fucking love you so good well done oh my god fucking hey jesta thank you again and thanks to absolutely definitely not a clone or some weird necromantic person created through mysterious means patrons alex beneshek and aaron got any blue sky codes i put them all in philosophers in space group go hit them up well, yeah, thanks, friends. So uh, with that, I think it is time to head on down to the abandoned cargo bay for some after dark. So those of you headed down there with us, go ahead and get your stuff together. Start heading that direction. The rest of you, thanks for listening. Hopefully uh, you'll join us at some point, and uh, we'll see you next time. Aaron, you ready to head down? 
Hey, Callie, you want to see if you can get yourself into my lock tomb? Thanks again to our listener units and patron units. Your support makes our internet broadcast possible. If you want to hear more from us, check out our other internet broadcasts, Queersplaining and Embrace the Void. Please consider leaving a rating or review on your internet broadcast application of choice and tell your friends about us. We will try our best to hopefully mostly maybe not entirely assimilate them. Trust us. You can follow us on Twitter at Zero G Philosophy or email us at philosophersinspace at gmail.com. Do you want even more juicy sci-fi hot takes in our After Dark segment? Or do you want to enjoy slash suffer through some wonderfully awful science fiction with us on our patrons-only podcast? Consider joining the crew over at patreon.com slash zero G. Until next time, friends, stay gooey.